Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to Peoples and Things, where we explore human life with technology. I'm Lee Vinsel. Oh man, I was such a mall kid. Me and my crew, which was primarily Casey Coughlin, Mike Pisker, who I call Biscuit, Ramon Diab, everyone called him Mo, and sometimes my brother Jake. Oh my God, we would just spend hours wandering around the mall, especially in junior high. Hours and hours wandering around and doing nothing BSing, trying to get deals in the food court, looking around. And then sometimes we would walk across the parking lot to a store called Leisure Hours, which had comic books and role-playing games like Dungeons & Dragons, but we mostly didn't play D&D. We were into games like Shadowrun, White Wolf, and Rifts, and the whole Palladium series. Comic books and role-playing games. I know you cannot believe that that's what I was into back in the day. I just know it. You would never believe that. And then in high school, I still went to the mall and I started hanging out at the record store Camelot Music because I had a crush on a girl who worked there. She was so, so dreamy. And I would make her mixtapes full of like Britpop and gothy industrial music, tapes full of sad, romantic songs. Oh, so sad. The incredible longing. And then I applied for a job there and I got it. And I worked there for years. You remember that movie, Empire Records, from 1995? Sometimes it was kind of like that. I'm not exaggerating. It really was. Malls. The mall. The American shopping mall. Formative for me and many others. And that's why I got so excited when I saw the recent book, Meet Me by the Fountain, An Inside History of the Mall, by author and design critic Alexandra Lang. I've been following Lang's work for several years now. I really like her architecture and design criticism whenever I bump into it. And I also like some of her early books, including The Design of Childhood, How the Material World Shapes Independent Kids. Just like its title says, Meet Me by the Fountain is a history of the shopping mall, but I think it is an exceptionally good one, including because of how well it explains how the mall became its own kind of culture, including in the way I was describing about my own youth and how malls ended up in media such as the movie Dawn of the Dead and the TV show Stranger Things. I also just really liked the writing in the book. Lang is able to seemingly effortlessly weave together multiple themes through rich examples, and sentences you will want to read. I had a wonderful time talking with Alexandra. I bet that will come across. Hey, get excited! Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you for inviting me. My books are definitely about people and things, so it's totally true. Yes, all of them. (laughs) 
Uh, you know, I can't wait to talk to you about this book. If you were explaining it to a stranger, if you explain it to strangers when you do that, what do you say about it and what were you trying to do with it? I usually say it's a book about the history and the future of a, the mall. Because if I mm -hmm. just say I'm writing a book about malls, then people say, oh, you're writing about dead malls. And that's actually yeah. only a teeny tiny part of it. And if you know anything about me, you'd know that I wouldn't want to write a book about dead malls. Like, I don't want to <laughs> write about things that are over, you know? Like, I, yeah. I definitely come from a design background. So, the, like, the books are trying to do something the same way that designers are always trying to do something. So writing about oh, dead malls wouldn't, I don't think, have that energy. So, yeah. So history and future of the mall. And then people are like, is there a future? And then, you know, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, I love that. So I want to let's just dig in right on that right away. I mean, like, so how do you see your intervention and in, like thinking about the future of the mall? How do you think about yourself in that? I really think I was trying to show that the mall is and was a site of creativity and that one that has creative yeah. potential. Because I think, you know, dead mall photography has really been a viral thing and it can yep. be very beautiful but it doesn't go anywhere you know it's it's like about this thing that is past and yep. we admire it's i mean often like we're basically admiring its symmetry its neoclassical architecture and yep. and these like the detritus of commercial culture but yep. you don't have to do anything after you've looked at that photo and the photos don't really necessarily make you think about what it means to have a dead mall in your town as this yes. you know, drain on the tax base, as a place often um, where people set fires, like they can be quite <laughs> dangerous. Um, yeah, yeah, and, they're bad. Yeah, like it, it's bad. It's bad for a town to have a dead mall in it. Um, and That's I right. feel like the dead mall photography, like doesn't necessarily raise any of those points. So like one of the things I talk about a lot in the last chapter of my book is like, what are people already doing with dead malls? Like what are the good points of dead malls? Like, you know, how yeah. can they be reused? So, you know, I want architects to be like, yes, I got a dead mall project, you know, like yeah, to have yeah, that yeah, yeah. kind <laughs> of energy about it rather than Amen. thinking like, oh, this is so boring. I mean, I've been yeah. talking with, uh, you know, the heads of a couple of architecture programs about doing a dead mall studio or, or a mall studio yeah, yeah, yeah. that would inevitably have the students try to design something for a dead mall site. And, and that's also part of what I'm trying to say. Like, there's so much focus in architecture education, on new build construction, on yeah. building things in exotic places, you know, on, yeah. on traveling with your studio. And I'm thinking, you know what, like on Route 1 outside of town, there's a giant dead mall and let's do something about that. I'm with you 100%. It's funny, uh, you know, I live in Appalachia and, um, you know, I could I could take you on a driving tour where we could just take photos of beautiful decaying houses, old houses mm -hmm. from like the 19th century and stuff like that. What gets me most more excited actually is when families in the valley I live in put beautiful new metal roofs on old barns. You know what I mean? And yeah. it's like, it's not a symbol of death actually. It's like, how do you continue life in this space? And I feel like sometimes we get too caught up on the the, the corrosion and not like on the, the other signs, I guess, you know? 
Yeah, I mean, corrosion can be very beautiful. You know, there's this totally. long history of artwork. Like, ruin porn is not new. Uh, yeah. but, I, but I also feel like we have to understand the consequences of letting things be ruins and think about how they can, you know, meet today. I mean, people still need yeah. houses and those old houses like have a lot of qualities that you can't really find in new houses, materials, totally. details, etc. So like, yeah, I think we should rescue them too. Yeah, yeah. What you know, so the subtitle of your book is an inside history of the mall. And I, I, I always you like you you have a number of good puns in this book, actually. So I was wondering if inside history, uh, what are you doing there? Well, uh, you know, the the trick of the mall was to create these incredible semi-public interior spaces in the suburbs. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, that was just a little wink on like what what was like the technological advantage of the mall. It was that you could have like beautiful temperate temperate environment all year round. Um, yeah, yes. I have to I have to credit my editor with coming up with both the title and subtitle though. Um, I mean, I love <laughs> it. It's the kind of thing he emailed it to me one day, and I was like, yes, that's perfect. That's Thank it. you. Like now. Yeah, yeah. now stress about that anymore because the working title for this book was just american mall and we always knew we had to change it but uh it was like you know are we gonna go poetic are we gonna go super matter of fact my last book was very matter of fact title that was it like the design of childhood was the placeholder title and then we just decided to go with it so interesting yeah this one is more poetic i think yeah it is um, so we're definitely going to talk about this great book. But first, I want to ask you, was there a special mall in your life as a youth? <laughs> well, I grew up in Durham, North Carolina. Um, and in yeah. the intro to the book, I sort of go through my personal history with malls. Um, yeah. But I mean, were they special? Like, I, I think the interesting thing about the malls and the triangle area was that they were really very ordinary. Like they were yeah. just your average mall in an average size city. They were very important to me as a teenager, but there wasn't anything yeah. particularly special about them. You know, they yeah, were doing well, their mean, job. I, I, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I think I think that's right. But what I mean, what was your relationship to the mall oh, as a teenager? Yeah. Well, I mean, the mall I spent the most time in as a teenager was South Square Mall, which has since okay. been demolished. And the stores I really remember going there were very, you know, peak 80s stores. Like I would go to the B. Dalton. I would go to the Gap. I would go to the Limited. And then I would mm-hmm. meet my friends after at the movie theater there to go to various movies and um, there was, yeah, I mean, there was always a question about whether they would let us into the R-rated movies or not, but they right, right. Did, yeah. that was a big deal. <laughs> right. There's a it? tiny frisson. Like, are we not going to get in this time yeah, because yeah, somebody yeah. decides that like they know we're not old enough to go without our parents. So, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that was exciting. I remember those times well. OK, so how did you come to write this book after the design of childhood and these other things you've done? Uh, after the design of childhood, you know, I was in the state that I'm actually in again now of kind of like casting around like, what's my next book project. And I actually had a, I had a book proposal for an entirely different book that I was working on. But I also was keeping notes on my computer actually in my draft emails um, about how I felt like there was 
something happening with malls. I had written a number of articles for Curbed about malls, um, partially in reaction to the opening of Hudson Yards, um, but also in reaction to this mall designed by Renzo Piano that opened in the greater Bay Area um, a few years ago. Mm -hmm. And I just, I felt like there was something there, you know, like often I'll end up writing three or four articles about a topic. And I'm like, there's something there that I keep trying to like scratch my way into. I'd also done a piece on um, the history of pedestrian malls um, because I felt like there was so much discussion about, you know, shared streets that yeah. was completely ignoring this history of pedestrian malls because they are seen as a failure. But in fact, we were just kind of recapitulating that history um, again. Yep, yep, yep. And, and they don't right, have again. to be a failure and trying to explain like which ones are not a failure kind of thing. So anyway, uh-huh. so I'd written all these pieces and I had in my the back of my mind, oh, okay, maybe after I finish this other book that I am proposing, like I'll do a mall book. Like this was kind of like mm-hmm. my backup plan or like, the next book, like in the future, how nice that I have like a project after my project to think about. But then I took that other proposal to um, my editor and the team at Bloomsbury who had had published The Design of Childhood and had right of first refusal on my next book. And they were like, we love this idea, but like, we don't, we don't think we can make it work. Like, it's just, we don't think we can make it work. But I'm sitting there in a meeting with them and I know like you should never leave a meeting with a no, right? You should always yeah, like yeah, have yeah. another idea. So I was basically like, oh, you know, like semi-crushed inside, like, oh, you don't like yeah. this idea. I was like so convinced it was going to be great. I was like, well, I have this other <laughs> idea <laughs> to write a book about shopping malls. And they were like, what? And I'm like, yeah, I really feel like they're building new <laughs> shopping malls, but everyone says the mall is dead. And we're in this moment where, you know, the 80s has really started to become history. And there's so much more like thinking and writing and analysis of this period, because now it's 40 years ago. Like, I I think there's room for a ball book. And they said, hmm, okay, like, come back to us with a proposal. So I went home and I kind of I wrote a proposal in like two days. I, I've been working on my wow. the other book proposal for like six months. Yeah, right, <laughs> but, right, right. But I just I put a proposal together using a lot of the material that I'd already, you know, written for curbs. Um and in fact talking about Stranger Things with the, the Stranger Things yeah. mall season was then on the air. So I was like, okay. here here are other people from my generation who are also trying to make art out of the mall. Yeah. Um so I put that together and they were like yes like this book (laughs) and i was like okay like let me like let's do this i guess maybe this is a better idea i mean i don't know like i think all the ideas end up being folded into your work even if you do them like straightforwardly or not like you know all the ideas end up getting written out um because honestly one of my other ideas for a book that didn't even get to the proposal stage was to do a book on teenagers um uh-huh. and uh-huh. several people like told me that that would be difficult for a variety of ways but now i see that the mall book is totally a book about teenagers it yeah. just doesn't yeah, you know yeah, say yeah. that on the cover so i feel like i right. covered i covered what i wanted to cover in my hypothetical teenager book in the mall book that's great yeah i also wanted to so i wanted to ask you how does one become a, a design critic, first of all? And second, <laughs> uh, I, wanted to, I wanted you to talk a bit about um, 
you know, how you how you experience your career in these different parts of your writing life, right? Because mm. like like we and I were kind of talking about before we press record, um, I know you mostly from your books. I've seen them reviewed. You know, I bumped into your books for for quite a while, but then like you have this whole other part of your life where you're doing like design criticism. So yeah, how does one become a design critic and how do you see it all together? Well, I mean, you become a design critic by declaring yourself a design critic. Like, I, I mean, <laughs> right. I've been I've been a freelancer, you know, since the age of 25. So like whatever yeah. titles I have are titles that I've given myself. And I guess mm -hmm. I, you know, I used to have architecture critic in my bio. And for a while, That's um, right. when I was writing for Curbed, I was their official architecture critic, which does that mean anything? You know, it was really helpful yeah. when I had to email people and say, I need a tour of your building. Like, I'm the architecture critic for Curve. Like, that's where it's right, 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 right. And then I changed it um, like a year or so ago to design critic because I really felt like, again, I was doing lots of things that weren't necessarily about buildings. And I just wanted to make sure there was yeah. room for that in my bio. Um, yeah, yeah. But, but I mean, yeah, how something... does one become yeah. one? <laughs> like, first of all, nobody yeah. wants nobody wants us. You know, I mean, like, <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. Like, nobody wants you. Nobody wants to pay you. But like, you're moving through the world, and like, there are a lot of things wrong from a like visual design perspective, user interface perspective, yeah. architecture perspective perspective in the world and if you happen to notice those things and have the skills to describe to other people what's wrong with those things then you just yeah, yeah, are yeah. a critic yeah and i know i at least like feel like <laughs> obligated and motivated to try to help people understand things in that way yeah and um but you've done like freelance writing since you were young it sounds like i mean you've done that hustle yes well, I mean, the the trajectory of my career is basically I um, I was a literature and architecture major in college, and I was the arts editor at the college paper. And then I moved mm -hmm. to New York, and I had a job at New York Magazine for a, about five years, which was like the best journalistic training. <laughs> and yeah, then and then I went back and got a PhD in architecture history. Um, and when I came out of that program, I was like. Now I don't want to just be like a general interest culture writer. Like now I want to be a critic. And so I really tried hard to find venues that would let me write criticism, you know, that yeah. would want it to be in my voice, my opinion, um, rather yeah. than the kind of more, um, you know, anodyne, like journalistic presentation. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. That's cool, man. <laughs> so this, uh, this book involved, you know, one of the things I like to do on this podcast is like, highlight the kind of work we do to make make books you know like this one or just works the kind of works we cover so like you know as you put this is this involved a multi-year study so like what'd you do how, how did you do research for this book <laughs> well there um so i wrote most of this book during the pandemic so mm -hmm. i i i literally started work on this book in january 2020 and Holy smokes yeah and i spent about two months um basically reading the whole history historiography of previous small books, like just so that I had right. like that history. 
Um, and I, I had a shelf in one of the reading rooms at the New York Public Library, which was great because, you know, it's like you can fill up yeah. the shelf with books and you just go there and you read them. And it's like very, it's very good for process to just feel like, OK, every yeah. day I'm going to the library and reading something. So I did that. And then I went on the first of what I hoped would be many mall tours. I went to Dallas and mm -hmm. toured North Park, which is the topic of the second chapter of the book. Um mm -hmm. And, you know, like did my interviews, did all those tours. And then I got back from that. And I think the next one I was supposed to do was go to the Mall of America with my family for spring break. But the pandemic happened. So I just, you know, <laughs> canceled all these plane tickets, canceled yep. all these hotel reservations, etc. And I had to kind of come to Jesus talk with my book editor, like, I'm not going to be able to do these tours. Like I had yeah. all of these ideas, like I was going to you know, do walkthroughs of all these malls. And he said, you know, like, I know why you want to do those. That's a very magazine journalist thing to do, to have like the yeah. walk and talk. But that's not necessary for a book. And in fact, like in many cases, you're not talking about these malls now. You're talking about these malls as yeah, they yeah, were yeah. at the time of opening. So can you, by using other resources, still get at, you know, that those scenes in a mall, but from another time? And it turned mm -hmm. out I could. And in fact, like this was a great book to be working on during the pandemic because I could access so many library resources, but I also, you know, spent a lot of time on YouTube watching, you know, dead mall videos, yeah, yeah, yeah. watching vintage TV. Living mall videos, living, right? <laughs> yeah, like dead mall videos, living mall videos, vintage TV footage of like when nice. X mall opened. Um, wow. You know, I have a whole section on mall wave. So there were all these workarounds that like I don't I think ended up, you know, making it a better product, but I was able That's to cool. access so much from my house, which I mean, thank you, everybody <laughs> who's like, digitizing and uploading and like making Amen. things available. <laughs> yeah, I know. I just like want to say that up front. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, I felt like I was consulting like lots of different kinds of sources and getting yeah. the spatial information that I needed, but I could actually do that from home during a global pandemic. Yeah. Uh, where did you choose to start your history of the shopping mall and why? Uh, it starts with American Dream, the giant mall in northern New Jersey, because American Dream, you know, is literally in my backyard. And I mean, like, yeah. And also it had just opened right before the pandemic at perhaps the worst possible time to open a new mall. So it seemed significant both for its news value as you know the the largest shopping mall in the united states mm -hmm. and for its sort of doominess like is anyone going to go there like can it survive etc so i just felt like here's like a dramatic and newsy place to start the book mm -hmm. and when you think about the history of the shopping mall when, i mean where do you start that history so i mean you know there's like the in in France, there's arcades and there's these yeah. other kinds of shopping yeah. forms, right? But the, sh the American shopping mall is like a thing that comes about when? When do you, when do you start that history? I mean, the, the official history starts in 1956 with Southdale in Edina, Minnesota, which was designed by Victor Gruen, who is the father mm -hmm. of the shopping mall. So that was the first 
purpose-built indoor shopping mall um, that sets the form as we know it with a giant mm -hmm. parking lot and two department stores and an indoor court um, yep. called the Garden of Perpetual Spring where you could eat <laughs> at a quote-unquote sidewalk cafe because Gru Gruen was a, a Viennese emigre. He fled the Nazis and he had this idea that you could have Viennese cafe culture in the American suburbs. Yeah. And so, there, you know, as you mentioned before, there have been other histories of shopping malls that Gruen is a known character in some circles. What yeah. did, you, did you find him appealing as a character? Was there anything <laughs> new you wanted to say about him? Or how do you feel about him? Yeah, it's so it's so interesting. Like, I knew I had to start with the book with him. Like, that was just right, inevitable. Exactly. But I felt a very heavy burden of him being probably the most written about person in the whole book. Like, and in general, right. I don't like to write about people who have been most written about. It's like they don't, yeah, yeah, they yeah. don't need my help. And also, like, in the, yeah, yeah sorry, I, I think that is actually how I think. It's like, who needs yeah, my me help? Too. Like, if they don't yeah. need my help, if other people have written about them, if other people will inevitably write about them because they check all these boxes, like, uh, you know, yeah. I'll just write about something else. Um, but, like, so Gruen was problematic because there had been many things on him, on him. Like, there's an excellent episode of 99% Invisible. There's an excellent biography called Mall Maker. Um, yeah, he was out there. And yep. so I really, I struggled in that chapter to feel like I was saying something new. And mm -hmm. I think the way I tried to do it was to really focus on the theme of weather. And so like, grew in yeah. not as sort of grew in not as the inventor of the mall, though he was the inventor of the mall. But as as part of this kind of narrative of the mall overcoming weather and like that's why yeah. we needed the mall. So just to frame the narrative slightly differently and in a way that I didn't think other people have. So I'm telling you the same facts, but I'm telling them in a different order with a different thematic push. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think it also just feels fresh because it's in this larger story yeah. arc you have. Yeah, so, I mean, so, the, yeah, the, the yeah. other thing I did that actually um, was important to me is <laughs> I mentioned Gruen's first wife, Elsie Crummick, who really like was an essential partner in his firm up to the point where he went off and did the malls. Like all of his early work in stores and yeah. department stores was with her as a partner. And um, I mean, I do consider myself a feminist historian, so I definitely like tried to weave the stories of women into this story. That, yeah, you do. Like, yeah. if you're talking about real estate and shopping and malls, like it, it's very easy to make it a super male-dominated story. And like, I don't. Mm -hmm. Again, I don't want to write a book like that. Someone else will write that book. Yeah. <laughs> well, you kind of teed up part of the next question, actually. Okay. So, I mean, uh. You know, I wanted I wanted to talk to you about you. Yeah, I mean, Gruen obviously like he's already thinking about gardens, but then you have this nice chapter that really kind of goes into the garden metaphor in a broader way. So you know, like how are malls? How were they? Maybe still are like gardens, and what's that mean? Yeah, well, the most obvious way they're like gardens is in that connection to nineteenth century arcades, which leads back to the connection to the 1850 Crystal Palace in London, which is a, mm -hmm. a glass house based on this um, 
glass conservatory architecture. So, so many mm -hmm. malls that have like this giant glass roof and have plants inside and the fountains, et cetera, are really based on these 19th century British conservatories. So they're always yeah. meant to be this garden initially like in the like hustle and bustle of the city, but, but ultimately like this garden within like the blacktop environment of the suburbs. Um, mm -hmm. So there's, there's that aspect to it. And then as I began to think about it, I also began to think about malls as a place that needs to be tended in a lot of yes. different ways. And that really makes it different from a lot of other architecture. Um, yep. Because, and this is where the whole maintenance discussion comes in. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Was about, and women's work, actually. And That's women's what work, I, I yeah, right. Yeah. So it's, um, I mean, the individual stores need to be tended. Like, I, you know, I, I watched the videos of... Um, you know, when SNL used to have that, uh, those gap girls as a character, oh, they did yeah, a lot of yeah. skits with the gap girls and, and yeah. they would actually fold the sweaters as part of the skits. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And like folding <laughs> sweaters at the gap is mall maintenance, right? Like keeping your Absolutely. store perpetually 100%. feeling fresh is maintenance. So that's one kind yes. of maintenance. Then there's the yep. overall kind of cleaning regime. Like it was really important yep. that malls be a cleaner environment than downtowns. Um, and like the good mall architects really thought hard about, you know, materials that would stand up to wear and tear that could be mopped every yeah. day, et cetera. Then the plants, you know, need their own kind of regime of maintenance. Um, and then right. there's, yeah. And then there's just the larger question of how do malls stay successful? It's by keeping the stores in them up to date. And that's yep. also maintenance. That's like the the intellectuality of the mall manager and owner trying to predict like what trends in shopping are going to yep, be. Yep, and, yep. Yeah. And what stores you need to keep. I up. love that uh, angle of that chapter, especially. <laughs> but yeah, man, I loved it. I loved it all. I was uh, really, it's funny. Yeah. Oh, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, I was actually kind of worried about the, the ma I don't know, the maintenance wing. <laughs> uh, yeah. Like when they came to that, because I, I feel like a lot of maintenance discourse is pretty anti-capitalist and obviously malls yeah. are capitalist and so like i realized that was a little bit perverse but i felt like it was also a truth so you just have to like yeah. live with that perversity no man i mean i, I yeah well people th sometimes think i'm i mean not that i'm not anti-capitalist i don't know but like i know i'm interested in the role that maintenance plays in capitalism and if you're going to have capitalist enterprises like malls are and the businesses in them are you got to maintain them to keep them desirability there. And, you yeah. know, there's maintenance there, too. Yeah. And, yeah. and it's it's women's work, often underpaid, um, it, exactly like it plays out in malls so often. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think um, I think the cleanings. Well, I don't I don't have statistics on the cleaning stuff, in malls, but I think it's yeah. often more mixed and maybe more men, but definitely like. Um, working in stores working yeah. in department stores has always been women's work um and particularly yeah. in department stores it was really this amazing way for women to rise up through the ranks yeah. and become professionals i i just had dinner with a friend and she was like oh my husband's aunt was a buyer for macy's and like yeah. she had amazing taste and she managed to parlay that into you know like owning two houses yeah, yeah, yeah. And filled with incredible things at a time when most women, you know, did not have that kind of job. So, yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, we're going to talk about my mall rat life a little later, but okay. I'll say I worked in a mall. I worked in a mall. I worked at Camelot Records. Oh, my God. Camelot it, Records. Yes. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. And uh, in high school. And um, and the reason I got hired at Camelot is because I a friend who was working there, someone I was get, becoming friends with, and uh, she was doing maintenance work on the CD stacks, basically. And there's something you have to do. It's like in when you're in the library, you have to shift things over like lines and stuff like o- over to next shelves. And I did that just automatically while I was helping her out. And her manager learned that I shifted something. And she was like, we got to hire that guy. He <laughs> and it was like totally 100 percent maintenance work. <laughs> was that kind of like the librarian gene that it just makes sense to like organize something? Yeah, well, like I mean, like, you're, yeah. you're going to run out of room. You got to create more room somewhere else, you know? Yeah. And so it was just like creating balance. You got to shift stuff around. And I just, it just came natural. And they're like, hire the maintenance guy, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so in your chapter, The Mall and the Public, this is, I mean, I, this is another fascinating chapter. And I, one of the things I have to say, you're a great writer. And uh, I love how you can play with so many themes. Uh, in a single chapter, you know, but but in a way that's not dizzying. And so I, some, I feel bad as an interviewer because m- sometimes I'm going into chapters and like pulling out one theme to ask you about. So feel free to riff. But among <laughs> other things, you, you talk about um, attempts to like bring malls and mall like kind of structures to other spaces like cities, existing spaces, harbors. Uh, you know, peers would be like the Chicago uh, version yeah. of that. <laughs> yeah. So, like, how does that how does that start developing? Yeah. No that that was a really like fun chapter for me to write because I was actually like born in Boston in the 1970s. So Faneuil uh-huh. Hall, which was really the first of the like downtown adaptive reuse malls opened when I was a kid. And every time somebody came from out of town to visit us, we would go to Faneuil Hall. Yep. And it was always super fun. Like, I mean, this is really in the heyday of it. And like all the things that Ben Thompson, who's the designer of Faneuil Hall said were going to happen, um, happened. Like it was like a mm-hmm. festival every day. There were jugglers, yeah. there were food carts, like there were good smells. Like it was super fun. So I yeah. I felt happy that I had a sense memory of it as it was the way it was supposed to be because honestly like it's a bit sad now. Um it's yeah, very yeah, yeah. like it's very touristy, it's being mismanaged. I mean one concept I had for doing a mall studio was a fix Faneuil Hall studio. Um <laughs> and honestly that. the 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 first fix is going to have to be to rename it because Faneuil was a slave owner and so they're um yeah, there is a movement to do that. Yep, which yeah. should be successful. Anyway, so um, yeah, there was this period in the 1970s where the the entirely predictable outcome that the malls and the suburbs siphoned shopping energy out of center cities happened. So mm-hmm. the cities wanted yeah. to get that back, like get those shoppers back. Yeah, um, and in some cases they built essentially suburban malls stuck in the city but in better cases they took historic architecture and tried to make urban malls that were more connected to their environment um and the and the principal person who did this was um the developer james rouse helped by ben and jane thompson um the architects and planners and so they Mm -hmm. did three major projects faneuil hall south street seaport and harbor place in baltimore 
And they all had this combo of like local businesses and um, an interesting historic setting. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, I loved it. I mean, and, and I've been to Harbor Town in, uh, in Baltimore. I mean, I, you know, these are places I connect to. And I want to talk to you. I mean, the the I I have these connections to Cleveland and um, mm. the the one in Terminal Tower they did. They like redid this mall in the basement of Terminal Tower. Um, it was a very interesting reuse, but it had a, a kind of sad story that I want to talk to you about in okay. a bit. So, uh, I so and actually it comes up in the next. So the the next chapter is um you know I felt triggered by whose mall is it anyway was okay. like triggering for me <laughs> as a mall rat from like the nineties. Yeah. Uh, so how did yeah tell me about this? There's so much I want to ask you about this okay. chapter, but tell me about how you came to write this one and yeah, you know what you cover. Well, that that's really the teenager chapter because yeah. it's like we identify malls with teenagers. But yeah. teenagers are constantly being kicked out of malls. I mean, this is actually like a very yeah. happening story today. I was literally just interviewed by um, WNYC for a story on this mall in Paramus, New Jersey, that instituted a new like curfew policy for teenagers. Okay. So there's always been this push pull between like who who needs the mall, you know, like as a safe public space where they can hang out and you know meet their friends and not spend too much money. And who the mall owners actually want to be there, who tend to be yeah. the moms of those teenagers because they have more disposable income and they're not loud and they're not going to mess anything up. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Um, I felt like it was really important to tease out, you know, the history of teenagers and malls. And then I actually found that there had been this long legal history about teenagers and malls and, and public protest in malls. Um, that yeah, was yeah, really yeah. fascinating to me, like not a legal scholar, but, you know, an excuse for me to read all these Supreme Court decisions. And right. it really, I think, I mean, the most interesting thing about that chapter for me is that the issues around whose mall is it anyway, what can you do mm -hmm. in a mall, like, you know, how public is a mall, I think are super relevant for all the discussions of public space that we're having now. Um, so yeah. malls are yeah, just yeah, yeah. a microcosm of a larger of larger questions about, you know, who has a right to the city? Where is protest allowed? Like, what are we really doing for teenagers? Yeah, because um, there was this so classic on. there was this classic criticism, right, that they were like public squares, but they're not. Yeah, I mean, they're not public, but um, I've described them as semi public or they yeah. are often when all goes well, they can be treated as public and used yeah. as public. But right. when things start to go badly, that's when the like private property rights and yep. mall cops get called in. And that's when you're like, oh, we've been using this as a public space. We don't have any actual public space in our town, but we, we're not like we, the voting public is not setting the agenda for this space. Yep. Yep. No, it reminded me so much of my teen years because my friends and I were mall rats and would just get dropped off at the mall for hours. And we were never, we were nerds. I mean, we were not disruptive. <laughs> I was also know? a nerd, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we were not disruptive. But my friend Casey, he, he discovered this hack at the in the food court where like places would have free refills, right? Uh -huh. 
And so he would he would just get free refills all day. Yeah. And then inevitably it was like restaurant after restaurant changed their free refill policy because of Casey. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> yeah. That yeah, is yes, that is classic. I mean, I think <laughs> being able to go to a place and and spend, you know, whatever a coke cost back then and sit yeah. and wander and stay all day like is the essence yeah. of maldom. And one of the things I talk about in a later chapter is how there's an evolution of like what that one food item that you're going to spend your $5 on, yep. $2 on is. But there is always something kind of sugary <laughs> for yes. you to spend your money on. Like it's never healthy. It's either yeah, greasy yeah. pizza or some sort of drink with 5,000 calories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, um, yeah, like, you know, going at your pretzel with nacho cheese or whatever. It's yes. like, or, or very greasy Chinese food or whatever it is. Yeah. yeah. Perfect. Yeah. And then like shops, like, you know, the other vivid memories I have from that period, other than hanging out in bookstores is like Gloria Jean's like pumping out coffee smell into the, you know, like often like flavored coffee smell because it was like the 90s and everything was like super dark roast, but it was like hazelnut dark roast or whatever yeah yeah i know i talk in the book i think about how about cinnabon and and i wanted to kind of get to the bottom of the like were they actually pumping out the flavor and and they were yeah, yeah. like it i was always like is that an accident or is it you know part of their competitive edge and it is in fact part of their competitive edge it's it's really yeah. true right yeah yeah um so there were two malls. I mean, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about briefly in this whose mall is it anyway is also about race and stuff like that. So and just get, like pick your mind about this. So there were there's two stories I wanted to tell. The first is that there were two malls in town. There was this uh, mall called Jefferson Square Mall. And then there was another Louis Louis Joliet Mall, Louis Joliet Mall. I lived in Joliet, Illinois. Okay. And um, uh. Two things in my memory. First of all, in Jefferson Square Mall, there was a shooting at some point. Okay. And that basically led to the mall dying, you know, because it became known as a risky space. Mm -hmm. And the, but around like at least, I mean, who knows what happened with the shooting? But with the, the mythology, it was very racialized story, of course. Yeah. And, um, you know, I worked at the other one, which is still living. And you can go watch. It's Louis Joliet Mall. You can go watch a living mall video on YouTube. <laughs> and I, it was pretty cool. The other story is this Cleveland story. So, you know, I, I used to hang out there in the summers with my grandparents. They redid the bottom of the Terminal Tower to be a mall. And for a while, it was very successful. You know, like all these people are coming in from the suburbs. And then what happened, the, the reputation became like black teenagers were, were going there after school and hanging out. And like, so white people just like stopped going, basically. And again, how much of that was like firsthand knowledge? I mean, probably very little, right? Yeah. I mean, it was all like yeah. whisper networks and stuff like that. But I wondered how, like, if you saw other examples of that kind of stuff ever creep up in the stories you were looking into. Yeah, definitely. I think the best parallel for that Cleveland example you just gave me is um, in the book I talk about the gallery in Philadelphia, the gallery at yeah. Market East, which was another Rouse project and was actually a public-private mall project um, built in downtown Philadelphia in the in mm -hmm. the 1970s and i have many friends who grew up in philadelphia and they would go to the gallery and part of the reason they would go to the gallery was because it was right over all the the um 
train lines that you know brought people to downtown to work exactly but that is also why unlike a lot of the malls in the suburbs it was more accessible to a broader like economic and racial array of people and i'm sure this is true in cleveland too yep totally but so that means that the mall is not necessarily attracting the middle to upper middle class um white consumer that all malls like since the beginning of time have kind of been aimed at and so that (laughs) starts to color people's perception (laughs) of the mall and then make like ultimately make the people who are going to the mall less diverse because in most cases like the white suburban shopper stops going to the mall yeah and i mean the irony is that there are a number of like really successful um kind of majority black mall spaces. It It's not as if, I mean, like this, yeah. I can't believe this has to be said, but it's not as if black consumers don't also have money and spend money, but it's yeah. very rare for commercial spaces to like directly try to attract the black consumer. Like a lot of yeah. times yeah. it's sort of what, I mean, there's the Chris Rock joke that I refer to in the book, like there's the white mall and the mall where the white people used to go. But yep. some of those malls where the white people used to go are super successful. And I talk about Fulton Mall, yep. which is an outdoor pedestrian mall in Brooklyn, where I go all the time because it's near my house, um, which like has like really, you know, well, pre-pandemic had really high foot traffic, had a very yep. high like per square foot price. Um, but nobody ever kind of intended it as a black mall, but it has yeah. been an important part of like the black community in Brooklyn for a long totally. time since the 1970s. So, yeah, I mean, like, I think one of the things that all malls, both urban and suburban need to do going forward is really like take a hard look at the demographics of this country yep. and stop focusing on such a narrow swath of the population that is in fact shrinking. Amen. Yeah. Totally. I mean, <laughs> yeah. yeah I'm the, the, the example I know of is um, I've I've spent some time in Maryland, especially College Park, Maryland, and uh, that the county that College Park's in. I can't remember the name of it right now. It's more, some king or prince, God knows. Um, uh, there's a black mall right there because this this area, because of the federal government and, and other things, have been one of the largest kind of affluent black uh, populations in the U.S. They have this cool mall that used to be where white people went, but now is a very thriving, interesting, mostly black mall. I went and saw a movie there, and it was just such a wonderful experience, actually. So, yeah, I totally hear you. We do need to <laughs> these icons of essence that people shoot for. That's always like the affluent white couple. Uh, it leads to problems when we yeah, talk about yeah. these things. And I want uh, to, yeah, I should oh, mention, oh, no, I should just mention, like, later in the book, I talk about the phenomenon of Asian malls, which is a very big deal, especially um, in Northern California. And the scholar yeah. Willow Longamam, who has done a lot of work on Asian suburbs, Asian malls, etc. And that's all really cool. interesting, because, like, that is one sector where you could really see a lot of financial success. And people are building malls specifically for these like majority Asian suburbs. Um, yeah, and, that's fascinating. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Dawn of the Dead Mall, yet another um, <laughs> wonderful pun. 
Uh, I, I will tell you, I also lived in I've also lived in Pittsburgh, and I used okay. to go to Monroeville. Okay. Uh, to I've even like just gone shopping in that mall, not gone like zombie tourism. So yeah, I mean, like, t- say what you're up to in this chapter, and where does the the dead mall meme come from? Well, I mean, yeah. So in that chapter, uh, I wanted to talk about like the history of zombies and malls, both in mm-hmm. film and in novels, and why those things were so connected. And also talk about how that zombie language has made its way over into the business discussion of malls. Like, it was very fascinating mm-hmm. to me that, okay, you know, like, Dawn of the Dead, like, cult classic, extremely gross <laughs> movie, I have to say. <laughs> but kind of... <laughs> But is like fairly biting social satire for its time. Like George Romero really really was going for it with that movie. Um, And it's quite early in the critique of malls. So that kind of sets this pattern where people already like associate malls and zombies. And then you start to see coverage of dying malls starting in the 1990s. And they also use this language of zombie malls and one mall yep. cannibalizing another so i i thought yeah, it was this yeah, really yeah. interesting transfer of language from fiction into reality um over yeah, the totally. decades since dawn of the dead which you know is a right. reference point for lots of people i mean that that was another question yeah. that i got asked really frequently when i said i was writing this book like oh are you going to talk about dawn of the dead and i was like yeah. yes even though i hate 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 horror movies that's great yeah so when do when do when does the industry start seeing when does the dying mall become an image i guess yeah i mean it's sort of hard to pinpoint because starting in the 80s people started to talk about malls dying and like they were sort of like setbacks and expansions all along but yeah i would say you know Dead mall photography and the real like mass die off of malls is really a like post two thousand eight recession thing. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that sounds right to me. Now that I think about it, yeah, you have a, actually in you know in the, in the chapter after that. Um, and by the way, I just want to you know with this like the other thing I what I like about your project is you're also into malls that don't die as we talked about earlier. And so I do want to, for the second time, mention that YouTube video of Lewis Juliet Mall that it's uh, is out there, and it's a non-dead mall. You know, I mean, it's not it's not great. Yeah, <laughs> it's not like you know, there's hardship there, but um, you know, they they, they don't all die, and I think that's an important message in your thing too, because I think we kind of sometimes get too caught up on this dead mall image. Yeah. Frankly. Yeah. You know. I mean, what I what I find myself having to say is like. Yes, a lot of malls have died and more will probably be dying. Yeah, but sure. there is still a class of highly successful malls. Like we're not going to be a country that has no malls. Like that's and not we're, happening. We're still building malls, right? Are we still building malls? Mm, we're not still building that many malls. But Well, I mean, yeah. like we build a lot of these kind of like lifestyle places that you also write about, right? I mean, yeah. like outdoor, mixed use. And we're seeing those often combined with housing. Like, I, I think yeah, like right, if you're building right. new retail in the suburbs now, you're probably building a quote unquote neighborhood with sort right, of like townhomes right, 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 right. and maybe an apartment building and then a retail district, which is basically yeah. like an open air mall. And they're also yeah. like, 
I mean, there's still like some very successful older malls that are still doing major renovations. Like I was out in LA yeah. in November and I went to um, Westfield Century City and it mm-hmm. got like a total renovation over the last two years. And it was beautiful. It was hopping. Like people were doing every mall thing you can imagine there. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Uh so you also have this kind of in the last chapter, or the the chapter after the um, uh, Dawn of the Dead Mall one. You you have these kind of three culprits you think are losing, leading to malls to close over time. Do you remember that part? Yeah. Um. Let's see. Well, first of all, the U.S. is over mauled. Like, yeah. Part of what is happening now is is the natural process of yeah. the amount of shopping in America yes. actually aligning with the number of shoppers. I mean, yeah. I, I think, you know, like the economy was doing so well for so long that, you know, people were just buying things and it was holding up like an incredible amount yeah. of retail that was just too much retail. Like that there are yeah, 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 there are yeah. charts that compare the number of like uh, retail square feet in the US compared to like other like first world nations and we just had yeah. like twice as much like even someplace yeah. like it was Aust- a bubble of sorts yeah. right in yeah it was a bubble. retail bubble so yeah um like some of what's happening is honestly like right sizing for the number of consumers <laughs> that we have so there's that yeah. then there is um the death of the department store which right and the department store and the mall, like, are two, like, are synergistic. Like, yeah, to, yeah. To build a mall, you had to sign up two department stores as your anchor tenants. And quite often, this is a whole complicated real estate thing, but quite often, the department stores actually own the land under their stores. Um, where uh. and somebody else owns the rest of the mall, which is part of why it's actually hard often to redevelop malls because you have to negotiate with all of these different entities. Oh, sh- it's not uh-huh. like one land use owner. I didn't get deeply into that because while I do think it's interesting, I wasn't really writing that kind of business book. <laughs> well, you and I yeah. would be into it. I'm not sure. Other, yeah, other, I was just like, I don't know how yeah. far down this road I could go. <laughs> so anyway, so, but when you say a department store is an anchor tenant, that is, yeah. li- that is literal. That is like a business right. thing. You need the, you needed these department stores. So yeah. department stores started to get hollowed out again I mean, partially, like partially pre-recession, just by like changing tastes yep. and shopping patterns, people started. Mm-hmm. The younger generations preferred to buy things in boutiques and specialty stores, and they didn't have the same kind of loyalty to department store yep. brands that say like my grandmother, who was a Lord and Taylor shopper, did. Um, so yeah. yeah, there was that change in retail, and then um, post-recession, there's really this economic split. Uh, so the people who used to shop at, let's say like essentially the middle and lower middle class department stores. So Macy's, Sears, JCPenney started shopping at discount stores and big box stores like Target, Walmart, Burlington, Target, right, exactly. I mean, Target was in fact like kind of an invention to make those people i mean who are my people really like feel better about shopping in target and not shopping at a quote-unquote nicer store anymore so um, so the high-end department stores Saks, neiman marcus nordstrom like have like have had their own problems but have in general been doing better 
than that's the mid and that's lower market yeah. department stores. Yeah. So you get this basically economic split in shopping. And so yeah. all of these- Like they're a country, by the way. Yes, <laughs> right, yes, right. You get this economic split. And that means that like people are no longer going to go to the mall to go to the Macy's for their prom dress yeah. or whatever else. And so you have this giant anchor store that's not doing well. And then you have a lot of consolidation and bankruptcies across the industry. Yeah. So those stores close. And like once one or both of the anchor stores in the mall closes, like it casts a pall over the whole Oh, yeah, mall. totally. I've seen it again yeah. and again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it's like the, that's the end. Yeah. It's like Unless you don't see you it yet. Unless you get something fun yeah. to replace it. And like yeah. that's one of the things that people are kind of working on now. Like what can replace it? It's just you have these like, you know, essentially like dead animals at either yeah, end of yeah, your mall. Yeah, exactly. And it just it doesn't work anymore. It's it it's not fun. Yeah. Like malls have to be like back to the main thing. Mall have to be like fresh and well lit and the music has to be yeah, playing yeah, yeah. and the water has to be running, or you do not get that kind they of gotta high. They gotta be fun, man. Yeah, they, they have to be, be fun. fun. Yeah. <laughs> You know, and so like I see, I go to malls now and I see like these little trains that drive around. I don't know if you've seen these. Yes, or, like, you know, I have like, seen them. Yeah, and like they're just little additions. But, you know, my kids are like, hell yeah, let's go for the train. So like, you know, it, you know, I got to keep it fresh in that way. Yeah. I totally yeah. hear you. And the other, th the third cause was just online shopping, right? I mean, that plays yes. some role. It but we've probably some... gone overboard with that too. You know, like that is a factor. Yeah, no, and that that's an important point. Um. People thought that online shopping was going to like doom all bricks and mortar retail and that hasn't happened and no. obviously like it the percentage of online shopping went up during the pandemic but it's already starting to come back down. Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. there's a um at some point I hope to have um the authors of this report that came out of Berkeley about retail uh it was like, you know, it's like apocalypse never was the kind of title but it was like it was just like you know like there, this is much there is change in the industry because of technologies online shopping but also ways retail shifting technologically but uh it's not not the apocalypse yeah uh and what, honestly about, like, i yeah, yeah well i find a lot of the shopping technology super annoying <laughs> Oh, I mean, like self-checkout and shit like that? Self-checkout, anything with a QR code. Like, I don't, yeah, I just, yeah, I yeah. feel like pe retail people like to propose those things as a solution, yeah. but I do not think the average consumer likes them at all. Amen. Yeah, no, I don't either at all. <laughs> Is it because we're boomers effectively, though? Maybe it's that. But no, I don't think anyone uses that stuff, do they? I don't know. I don't know. My, um... I'm trying to think about my kids. Like I mostly encounter like the QR code thing in yeah. restaurant settings and like going out to eat with your family and having to yeah. look at the menu on your phone is a disaster. It's dreadful. So bad. How yeah. old are your kids? They are 12 and 15. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I'm just comparing like experiences here. I got a nine and a seven year old. Okay. Uh, tell me about postmodern malls. I mean, so, I mean, I just want to make sure we've hit everything because that's another chapter where you you have like people using malls for schools. And I mean, there's all these redesigns going yeah. on, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, the example I use a lot because like it's really it's like one of the most positive and the design is nice, too, is um, 
Austin Community College that took over That's the it. old Highland Mall, um, yeah. which was the first indoor mall in Austin, opened in 1970. And like about 10 years ago, the writing was on the wall. And um, Austin Community College like bought the mall along with the developer and they created this really elaborate 10 year plan to build it out. And now they are like running the community college at the mall. They're, they've actually reused a lot of the like concrete and steel infrastructure, which yeah. saved them a huge amount of yeah, money. Yeah, yeah. They build new housing. They save the planet. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, well, I think that's yeah. it. Like, I think the environmental factor is important. Um, like, I do too. There's a lot, yeah, there's a lot of material, let's say. Um, yeah. in these malls and figuring out good ways to reuse it is really important. A lot of people immediately are like, oh, could we build housing like in the mall? And I'm like, you know, that's that's not actually for a variety of practical reasons, the best use of it. But yeah. you can build yeah. housing in the parking lot and you can um, redo some of the retail and you can add space for community colleges or a Y or a library or other things and yeah, yeah, still yeah. reuse those totally. boxes. Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, you know, this is I, I sometimes I like some aspects of the guy Vaclav Schmiel's work. And one of the you know, he's always talking about like what he calls the four pillars of modernity. It's like plastics, steel, concrete and like ammonia for fertilizers. And we don't know how to replace this stuff, you know, and, and it's con the concrete's a huge generator of greenhouse gases and stuff. So, yeah, yeah. I think any any time we can reuse these structures, we should we should be doing that. Yeah. Uh, what's next for you, man? I, I say you're feeling around. I remember I just went through that process. So okay. my book, my innovation delusion came out a couple of years before yours did, or at least one. No, probably two. And so, yeah, I, I went through a couple of years of just wandering around and coming up with different book projects. And what are you, what's going on right now? What are you thinking? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I feel called to do like something else involving retail like i feel like at this yeah. point like i know a lot about retail i have a lot of thoughts and feelings about retail and while the mall book is obviously about retail it's less about kind of brands and shops and other things that i feel like there's a lot of room to talk about so i mean i yeah. i think you know i've been trying to have fun with my freelancing this semester and i wrote um a piece for the new yorker about the brand Dansk, which Food 52 has brought back. And I wrote another piece recently about the design of edibles, like both the cannabis edibles, like the packaging nice. and the dispensaries. So I feel like yeah. I'm kind of like bumping around like, like what, like what design, what's design that people actually want? Like, how does it yeah, feel? Yeah. Like, what are we looking for? Um, both in the shopping experience and in the things that we're buying. That's cool, man. I would read that book too and <laughs> have you back on the podcast to talk about it. Alexander, I mean, you know, like, I, you know, like, I think we're supposed to hate Twitter because of Elon or whatever these days, but, you know, like, sometimes it's done good things in my life. One of the things, it, nice things it did is it uh, introduced me to you and your work. So I thank Twitter as an infrastructure for being there. And uh, thanks so much for taking the time to come on and talk to me today. It's been great. Yeah. No, this has been really fun. Hope you enjoyed this episode of our podcast. You can reach us with questions, 
comments and suggestions at leevinsel at gmail.com or by following me on Twitter at STS underscore news or on YouTube at People's Things. Our podcast is distributed by the New Books Network, the leading platform for academic podcasts, so that you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Peoples and Things, like most things in this world, depends on the work of many people. I want to thank my brother Jake Vinsel for writing the music for the show. I want to thank my buddy Juliana Castro for designing the logos for the podcast. You can check out her work at julianacastro.co. Joe Fort is the producer for the podcast, and Mandy Lamb is the production assistant. This podcast and other Peoples and Things programming are produced in affiliation with Virginia Tech Publishing and supported by the Center for Humanities and the University Libraries at Virginia Tech. For information about other podcasts from Virginia Tech Publishing, visit publishing.vt.edu. For the entire Peoples and Things team, I am Lee Vinsel. And most importantly, I want to thank you for listening. Thanks.